Vince and his son, John, which we, we know as John the Baptist. Um, so we're going to be looking at that a little bit closer today. Um, how many of you remember when you were kind of a, a little kid, uh, you grew up and you had this special thing that you had your heart set on for Christmas? might have been an action figure or a doll or a, uh, uh, some kind of video game or something like that. Maybe, maybe you wanted to go to Tato Land, uh, maybe something special like that. Um, whatever it was, all of us kind of had that something that we longed for, that we wanted for, that we, expect, we had this expectation, and we just, we just so desperately wanted to receive that at Christmas time. I remember when I was 10 years old, there was one thing that I wanted so desperately, and it was a BB gun, you know, a little, little pellet gun. And I lived in the country, in the States, and so I had, like, no experience with weapons whatsoever, so I don't know what I was thinking I was going to do with it, but I imagine I was going to shoot tins or bottles or something and, and uh, you know, just, I don't know, be a kid. Um, so very excited about that. However, my mom wasn't excited about that, as you can imagine. She was afraid I was going to shoot my eye out, of course, and so uh, she wasn't sold on the idea. She felt I was a little too young for that, and I was. Um, and so you know, I just, but I, I desperately wanted this, and so I was trying to think of all these kind of, you know, your kids, you're trying to like put this best foot, foot, your best foot forward with your ideas when you're trying to convince your parents. So I was like, mom, like, just think, if somebody broke into our house, like, I could be the means of protection for our family. As a 10-year-old, I'm like trying to, she didn't buy that. Um, so that, that Christmas, I got a lot of cool things. Unfortunately, I didn't get the, uh, the BB gun I wanted. I got it a few years later. In Proverbs 12, 13, it says this, that hope postponed grieves the heart, but when a dream comes true, life is full and sweet. Um, I'm sure you've all been there. I've been there. We've been waiting and longing, anticipating for this current season to pass, for the kind of the new season to begin. We've definitely felt that in the age of COVID, but even in your personal life, I'm sure you've probably experienced that and felt that you know, a time when we don't have to worry about taxes or politicians or, you know, we don't have to be anxious about, you know, the possibility of a looming war or, you know, pressing deadlines or economic instability or any, any of these things. We look forward to a day when we don't have to have to deal with these things anymore. Um, and before the birth of Christ, Israel was in the state of longing. They were in the state of waiting. Um, and so as we return to the scriptures today, I just want us to remember the background of what Israel was experiencing at that time. When times passed, Israel went through periods of time uh, where God seemed silent, where nothing seemed to be happening. We see this in uh, the time when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. And this lasted for over 400 years of just waiting. They were longing to be out of their enslavement. They longed for that. They wanted to get out. And God would eventually raise up uh, a deliverer, as we know as Moses, to rescue his people and uh, to free them from their bondage. But throughout Israel's history, Oftentimes, we'd see God raising up prophets and priests and kings and judges to rescue God's people, to be that, that means of salvation to his people in that current moment in time. And so as we get to our passage today, we must understand that God uh, is going to raise up a once and for all champion in Jesus Christ. He's going to be a perfect king. He's going to be a perfect priest. He's going to be a perfect judge and a perfect prophet. In Christ, we're going to find salvation is brought to God's people once and for all. But in this time, at this time, right before Christ is born, it's called the intertestamental period. It's, it's this period of about 450 years where nothing is happened. Nothing is happening. 
Um, and they've just been waiting and longing. And so when I say nothing is happening, there, there's no angels, there's no miracles, there's, there's uh, no new revelation, there's, no, there's nothing happening. It's just, we're just existing. And we've been praying for things to change, but nothing is happening. Um, and yet during this time, there is a lot of things happening. Um, in 332 BC, Alexander the Great is taking over countries left and right. He takes over um, Israel and Judah and makes it a part of his kingdom. And uh, that didn't last very long. Eventually, after he died, uh, his generals started fighting over lands, and the Holy Land became basically a, a middle ground between just constant wars as they tried to make it a part of their kingdom. And eventually, they were able to kick the Greeks out, and they had a few, few decades of peace where they didn't have anything going on, where they were able to rule for themselves. But then in 63 BC, the Romans come in, and they take over. And so by the time we're getting to this text today, about two generations have existed where they've been waiting on the Romans to leave. They've been waiting on the Romans to get out. But yet during this time, this 450 years, there's been no prophecy, there's been no angels, there's been no miracles, there's been no new revelation of what's happening with God. God seems silent. God seems absent. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, how do we respond when God seems silent? How do we respond when it seems like nothing is happening? Do we stop praying? Do we stop, you know, God doesn't seem to be doing anything, so I'm going to stop doing, you know, anything, do you, because we feel cut off. Do we, do, we, do we kick ourselves out of our own community? Do we, do we distance ourselves because we, we just don't feel like it's worth it anymore? We just kind of distance ourselves. Or, or do we try to push God um, because of our anxiety, do we like King, King Saul? Do we try to make things happen? Do we try to force God's hand into action? Um, you know, when, when God is quiet, don't we often try to make sense of that? Don't we try to make sense of, you know, why is this happening? Why do I feel like nothing is, is moving? Why do I feel like God is not answering my prayers, not even listening to my prayers? Where are you? And so Israel at this time, they've been trying to process this, this themselves internally. Like, how, do we, how do we deal with this silence? Because it's been centuries I mean, 450 years, that's a long time. America, did, most of the countries didn't exist at that time that we currently have in the world today. Most of the countries don't even exist. So 450 years is a long time. Um, and God seemed silent. And so Israel at this time, they tried to process this silence in different ways. You had, you had different groups that were, that were kind of these religious groups within uh, Palestine that were trying to figure out what to do. You have the zealots who were essentially just freedom fighters. They're trying to kick the Romans out. They're trying to make their life miserable. They're trying to upset the economy. They're trying to kill uh, political leaders, anything they could to make the Romans say, I hate living here. I want to get out of here as soon as possible. And basically, let's let, let's let Israel kind of rule themselves because if, as long as we stay here, it's going to be miserable for us. And so the zealots were constantly trying to stir the pot to try to get the Romans to leave. You have the Sadducees who basically essentially believe that why are we even worrying about this? This is just temporary and, you know, we're all going to be in heaven one day, so does this even matter? Like, why are we getting upset about the current state of things? Because this doesn't really matter. You had a group called the um, Essenes who were basically just uh, wanting to get away from it all. They went into the quiet and solitude of the wilderness and they tried to um, basically just live these lives of purity away from the city, away from the, the busyness of everything going on. You had the Pharisees who just basically, they felt, you know, the reason that we're experiencing all of this with the Greeks, with the Romans, is because we have not lived up to God's standard. 
We haven't done the right thing. We haven't been moral enough. We haven't done the, 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 the good thing. And the reason they're still here is because we're not good enough. That we're, we're just not doing what we should do. And if we would, you know, really all of us get together, really focus on being perfect, then eventually God was going to kick these Romans out. And so everyone is trying to figure out how do we deal with this? How do we process this? You know, because God, when, when he seems silent in our own lives, we, we will have a response to that. I've been thinking about my own life, you know, and, and in so many ways I trust God, absolutely. Am I willing to move overseas? Absolutely. Uh, but when things seem stalled, when things seem like nothing is happening, when things, when things seem like uh, everything is at a standstill, what do I do? I, I feel like I often will fabricate things. I'll try to, like, uh, make, uh, because my heart feels un- so unsettled by this inaction that I will try to act on God's behalf. All right, God, I need you to do this. Why aren't you doing this? Okay, I'm just going to do this, and we're just going to see if you kind of join in me, because I'm, I'm trying to move forward with this. God, are you, are you with me on this? Because I'm kind of, and so I'm constantly trying to move forward with things, and so maybe my faith isn't as solid in God as I think it is, as I've been thinking through this, this text this week, and so I've been praying through that and processing that. And so this week, uh, my wife was, uh, she, she came ac- across a quote, and I just felt it, it was kind of in line with this today. It's uh, from Elizabeth Elliot, who was a, a missionary um, in the last century. Um, this really spoke to my heart. She said this, um, he, God, makes us wait. He keeps us on purpose in the dark. He makes us walk when we want to run. He, he sit, makes us sit still when we want to walk. For he has things to do in our souls that we are not interested in. He has things that he wants to do in our souls that we are not interested in. Um, friends, I just want to challenge us this morning. When, when, when things seem like God is silent, when he's not interacting with our prayers, when he's not responding, like I challenge us to distill our hearts, to pause, and just ask God, what are you wanting to do in my soul in this moment? What are you wanting to do through me in this moment? How are you speaking to me? How are you guiding me in this moment? What, what ways are you wanting to stretch my faith and trust in you in this season? Because if I'm busy filling my time with um, entertainment and, and screens and comfort and fun stuff, there's a good chance I'm going to miss out on what God is trying to speak to me in this season. And as we're looking at this passage here today, um, let us go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 1 in in verses 8 through uh, 20 of Luke 1. It says this, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, 
How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. As we think on this, like it's been 450 years and it's been silence. Is God dead? Where is he? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he stepping in? Why isn't he saving the day? And so we have to think of what Zechariah is going through in this moment. Because it's not only been silence for the whole nation, but it's been silence for him. He's been praying for who knows how long, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, praying to the Lord, Lord, I so desperately want to have a child. I so desperately, we've wanted this, we've prayed for this, Lord. We feel like this is uh, something you've placed in our hearts, and we just so desperately want it, and yet nothing happens. And Elizabeth, in her, in her age, she's, she's unable to conceive. I think, I think all of us, really, we've, we've been looking at Mary last week. Like We all naturally think in our hearts, man, I would respond just like Mary in this situation. But looking at this... I. I don't know. I, I think I would probably respond like Zechariah as well, more than we would dare to admit to do that, because he's waited many years. He's waited many years, a long time of waiting, and it's through this situation God is going to uh, allow him to wait even longer. Nine more months of silence as he's processing this. He's going to be quiet before the Lord because God, going back to that quote from Elizabeth Elliot, what to do in Zechariah's heart. And then let us return back to verse 57 this morning, our main text today. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Totally lost my place. <laughs> and they made, uh, yes, and so they said to her, none of your relatives was called, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted. And his name was John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. You know, this is such a, let's just be honest, this is a weird weird story because you're, you're getting into this situation where, I mean, you guys just had a kid. Imagine if all of us got into a room and said, you know, we think we've made a decision. We think that the best name for this child is to be Nathan. We've really prayed about it. We thought that was the best situation. Of course, like you'd be like, no, that's a bad name. I don't like that name at all. That's, a, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're going to do. It's such a weird situation, right, for all the community to come together and make the decision that we're going to veto mom. Mom has no say here. Oh, we're going we're to talk to dad because mom apparently is not thinking clearly. We're going to talk to the dad. All right, dad, what do you think? Because Elizabeth's not in her right frame. She's, she's very tired from having the baby. What do you think? Don't you think they should be named after you? And Zechariah is like, what are you guys doing? Of course, like, we're, we're going to name him what we think he should be named. Um, I mean, if that happened to any of us, we would have a few choice words for these, these groups of people, right? Let's just be honest. And so, yes, in this, in this, in this culture, in this, in this time, it would be completely normal for a child to be named after the granddad. Probably because Zechariah is so old, they probably thought, hey, that's kind of a way to honor him in his old age that, you know, God's done this, and you should name him Zechariah, Absolutely. 
But um, as we're reading this and kind of processing this, I also want us to ask just question our heart on this. And how do we respond to outside pressure to disobey God? How do we respond to outside pressure to disobey God? Because it, it doesn't matter at some point in every Christian's, in every Christ follower's life, you're going to face this pressure to disobey God. Most of this pressure comes from internally, it comes from our own flesh and our own desire to have moments where public opinion, peer pressure um, will encourage you to do what they think is right instead of what you think is right. And so this may be in regards to sexuality or gender or, or the right to choose. But at the end of the day, people-pleasing has the power to test our faith and really distract us from what God is wanting to do in his work within us. Because as we're, as we're looking at this situation here between Zechariah and Lee, I believe that you have to also understand the moment. Because in this culture at this time, if you're unable to bear a child... It's seen, it, it is seen from the perspective of you have hidden sin. You are unable to have a child because of you have something wrong with you. That you have done great evil that has not been brought out, and that's the reason that you're unable to have this child. And so Zechariah is a priest in God's temple. And so this is kind of a semi-scandalous situation because he's supposed to be the one who's blessed by God, and yet his family is not able to carry on. And so not only are they facing this kind of external shame that's happening in their own community, but you also have to understand that they're facing internal shame as well because, you know, their bodies are not doing what, what God had made them for in, in producing a child. And so it's just tremendously painful. It's tremendously agonizing as they're facing this. And so as we're going through this, I, I want us to understand that um, in this situation, Zechariah and Elizabeth are facing this pressure from the community to do something, to, to make a decision based on what they think is best. Uh, there is a book um, called God is Small, and it's by a guy named Ed Welch. And in, uh, in the book, he talks about, um, and bear with me, this is kind of abstract, but um, he, he talks about a fear of the Lord continuum. Um, and we'll kind of put it up here. And so this is, um, this is basically um, how all of us react to, to God regardless of where you are in your faith and where you are in your understanding. Um, this is, basically, as our full understanding of the Lord increases, we go on a journey of relationship with Him. And so, as our understanding of God increases, we go from these lower parts where we don't really have faith in God, but we have an understanding of God. So, this is kind of terror or dread, trembling. We, we kind of feel these feelings where, where God makes us anxious, like, you know, Church would be the last place that we would ever attend, that kind of thing. And then, and then we kind of move forward where we're, we have astonishment and awe, where we maybe have, an under, we have a belief in God, we have a, maybe a, a semi-trust in, in what he's up to and that sort of stuff. But then we, we, go, we grow further and further up until the last thing, which is trust, and then ultimately worship there. And so just asking ourselves, how do we feel like today we relate to God? Because as we're at the bottom of the ladder here, there's one thing that is true, and that is that we will have a tendency to fear people. And I don't mean like you're afraid of, of people, but you will have this tendency where our actions, your, basically your actions, your thoughts, everything, everything you do is seen with, through the lens of how will my community, how will, this? how will they perceive this? How will they think about this as I'm doing this? It becomes less about 
It's not a fear of God where we are worried about what God will think about this. It's what will other people think about me doing this? What will people think if I'm you know, going to church? What will people think if I'm, if I'm acting this way? And uh, pastors are, are not immune to this at all. In fact, many, many churches have been harmed by pastors who with, you know, how do people, um, being, by being liked by men rather than being liked by God. And so the less we fear God, the more we're going to fear people. The more we fear God, the less we're going to fear people. Um, so we, we also, another thing is that we might be aware of the holiness and justice of God. But as we move forward in relationship with him, as, as our fear of the Lord increases, we become enamored by his love. You see on these bottom rungs here, these are, these are people who understand maybe the holiness and the justice of God. But as you move up, you grow in better understanding of his love for us. And so as, as, we, as we look at Zechariah here and where he's at personally with his relationship with God, you have to understand that he is a man of great devotion, obviously. He's committed. He's serving in the temple day in and day out. And so just looking at this here today, I would say he's, he's at the, the level of trust with God where he is in the reverence and devotion. He's committed. He's the first one there. He's serving. He's, he's, he's a greeter at the door. He's serving in kids. He's doing all these things. He's devoted to doing what he feels like he should be doing. And, but yet he lacks what? He lacks trust. He lacks trust in God. We see that here because what happens in verses 19 and 20 says this, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day which then these things will take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. He must walk with great devotion, reverence for God, but yet he lacked trust in God. And like this is this is somebody that you would want. Um, this is somebody that you would want to have in your church. This is somebody you'd want to like be friends with. And this is somebody who's incredibly committed. And yet we see that at the end of the day, he lacked this trust with God because he had been for for years. He he's been in his answered. It's understandable, right? And so God, you know what what may seem cruel to our eyes was actually the goodness of God and and him being silenced. I'm thinking of Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. He had this moment for nine months where he was able to um, be still, be silent, and to think on these things. Um, as we experience difficulty and pain and longing, these are actually invitations. These are actually the goodnesses of God um, to bring us in a closer relationship with him. Because for nine months, he was unable to speak. He was unable to talk at all. But this was a blessing in disguise. Because during that nine months, what did he see? He saw the prayers that he had prayed for many years be answered. He saw his wife conceive. He saw her begin to uh, develop and eventually have this child. But you, you also see what? You see Mary show up and stay with them for three months. You see this. And so you've got to see this not only like, that experience that we talked about last week between Mary and Elizabeth and them coming together and God just showing up and all these amazing things are, are revealed to them and they're praising God for all of this. But that moment was not just for them. It was for Zechariah as well. Because through all that, he was able to see the goodness of God in this. That his wife is indeed going to bear a child. But even bigger than that, this child is going to be special. And even bigger than that, 
He is, he is a part of the messianic age. Like he's, he's going to be a precursor to Christ. He's going he's to prepare the way for what Christ is going to do. And so he sees all this. He's, he's thinking on this. He's processing all this. And it's just an amazing moment. That was a gift for him to be able to think things. And I don't know what would have happened if, if Zechariah decided to name John Zechariah after himself. But I believe that the evidence would be that he would be taking a step down on the, that level of trust and walk with God. Because what happens after that nine months, and people are questioning him and really pushing him, really, make, really giving him pressure to let you know you should name him something else. He says, no, we're doing what God told me to do here. I'm going to trust in him. I've, I've learned in this season to be more than a person devoted to my faith. I'm going to be a person who trusts in God completely. And so when he's making this, he's actually taking a big step of faith, if you will. And so he's going up the ladder of, of trust in the Lord. What else happens? As we get into verses 67 onward, the very first thing that happens when Zechariah gets his voice back, he doesn't say, oh, I get to talk to my child. He doesn't have this this special bonding moment with his child. He doesn't say, wife, it's good to talk to you again. I love you so much. I've missed you. I've missed talking to you. I've missed having conversations. No, he spends that time what? He praises God. He goes from devotion to trust to a state of worship because he sees all that has happened over the last few months as God's gift to him. His, his relationship with the Lord has been strengthened. His relationship with God has changed. And if we can just be honest with ourselves, um, you know, in this moment, where would you be kind of on this, this ladder of, of trusting the Lord? Is, are you in a place right now where you feel kind of this, this trembling? You, you, you get nervous, come to people about God and faith. And are, are you in a place where you're in awe, reverence? And, or maybe you're, like, maybe you're like Zechariah in that moment. You're, you're in a place of devotion, and you're, you're, you're the best servant, you're the best helper, you're the best, you know, I'll do whatever I can, but you haven't reached that point of distrust where you're allowing God to say, Lord, I trust you in this, I'm going to follow you in this, I feel like you're guiding me in this way, I'm going to trust you in this moment. Are you, are you a person where you could say, I, I'm, I'm in the place of worship, I'm, I'm as close to the Lord as I can. I feel like none of us are probably there, we have a long way to go. I feel like we, we need to really just spend some time in our hearts today thinking about this and thinking about how the Lord wants to take us on a journey, a journey of faith, a journey of trust, a journey of closer abiding with him where, we, where our thoughts are on him, where our thoughts are continually. Um, as we turn to that final section today, uh, we're going to be looking at that 67 onward. It says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Again, what does he do? He praises God in heaven. And why, did, why should God be praised? We see that in verse 68, that he has visited and redeemed his people. Of course, when, uh, to redeem something means that you have uh, gained something in exchange for payment. So if you, have, uh, if you go to the grocery and, and you have something, you're redeeming something, you're, you're giving them a voucher or coupon or something like that, and you're receiving an item in its place. And so what is, what is he redeeming for us? He's delivering us of sin through Jesus. He visits his people. He redeems his people. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 69 that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. What a weird phrase. It's like that, I was thinking of this and like, it'd be like me saying, the pizza of promise. Like it's just a, it's just, what in the world are you talking about here, Zechariah? This makes no sense. Um, making this connection here that, you know, with an animal, the strongest weapon on their entire body oftentimes is the horn that's on them. And this, macha- this, mes- this Messiah child will be, um, that Mary is, is carrying will be strong, that he's going to be the source of deliverance from, his, from our enemies. And by relating this, this child, this Messiah to an animal, he's making this connection that Christ is going to serve as a sacrifice here for his people. And so, um, but yet there's this misunderstanding regarding the role of what the Messiah is going to look like. He's, he's going to conquer our enemies. But it's not those enemies. At that time, you, you, the, the mentality was, he's going to deliver us from all of our enemies. He's going, to, he's going to give us, he's going to get rid of the Romans finally. We're going to be in peace. We're not going to have to deal with anyone else. We're going to be able to rule and protect ourselves for all time eternal. That's what the Messiah is going to do for us. Um, but it's not those enemies. It's um, the Messiah isn't here to deliver us from people that we don't like. He's not here to um, conquer the ones that we don't care for, the, the governments that rule unjustly. Um, because if the Lord destroyed enemies, he would not be implemented. He wouldn't allow that work of grace to be implemented. You think through the Bible. You have the Apostle Paul. He was literally rounding up believers throwing them into prison. They were getting murdered. They were being martyred for their faith. But what would have happened if, if they took Paul and said, we don't care what you've done. You're an enemy of God. We're going to kill you right here. You, you've, 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 we're going to attack you. We, we wouldn't have the church as we know it today. Church plants wouldn't have been, been sprouted all over Asia. We wouldn't have seen that. That act of grace, we would have missed out on the writings of Paul. We would have missed out on so much if, if our enemies at the time had not been able to experience the marvelous grace of our God. You think of the Samaritans. That At one point, the disciples were so frustrated with the Samaritans that they, they told Jesus, you know what you should do, Jesus? You should call down fire from heaven and destroy them all. Let's just get rid of all the Samaritans. Like, that was their thinking. And Jesus is like, whoa, guys, that's a little crazy. Um, and what happens? In Acts 8, after the church is persecuted, Philip goes to Samaria in Acts 8, and starts a church. He plants a church in Samaria. The, the, the people that they were wanting to destroy just like a few years ago, now God is acting on a work of grace in their lives, and they're getting saved. This week I was in West Belfast, and I got to share the gospel with a guy who was sentenced to over a century for crimes during the Troubles. And I got to share the gospel with him. I mean, these people that were our enemies, God is doing a work of grace. Like, you you have to have eyes to see this. If, if we are constantly thinking about our enemies, enemies and God, you need to like get what we don't like, you don't, you don't have an understanding of what God is up to in his work of grace. Like we have to have a bigger picture of what God is doing because God, in his reconciling work, is turning these enemies, these people that we once hated, and turning them into brothers and sisters. And we have to have eyes to see because God is raising up this, this horn of salvation not merely to liberate and oppress people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. Instead of riding on a mighty, donk, a mighty uh, stallion into Jerusalem, he's, he's not this victorious champion. He's coming in meek and humble. 
riding on an unbroken baby donkey. His victory isn't what we think it is. Instead of destroying like people to the left or right politically of us, the governments we fear, he destroys the one who has the power to really destroy our soul. That's Satan himself. We know this because we know the reason Jesus came to earth. In 1 John, 1 John 3, 8, it says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Hebrews 9, 26, it says, Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Colossians 2.15, it says that Christ has disarmed the principalities and rulers, triumphing over them at the cross. In Hebrews 2.14.15, it says that Christ took on human nature, and so that by his death that he might break the power of him who holds the power over death, that is, Satan, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus came not to liberate us from evil governments, or evil people. He came to uh, liberate us from evil itself. He didn't kill the symptom. He killed the cancer, sin itself. And so Zechariah, here in this moment, he's declaring, God. He's declaring his, God's goodness to his people, and he changes his, his tense here. He, he goes from talking past tense about what God has already done to a future tense where he, he specifically is saying what God is doing even through his own son, John the Baptist. Verse 76, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. But even as Zechariah here, he goes on to prophesy and talk about his son, He's really seeing it all through the lens of Jesus. He's seeing everything through the, through the lens of the Messiah. God is using to prepare for what Jesus will do, for, for Jesus' work, for Jesus' ministry, for his teachings. He's gonna, John is going to soften their hearts to repentance so they might receive what Christ is saying. He's going he's gonna to offer light. He's going to bring where the people who are in darkness. He's going to bring light and allow Jesus to break in and to guide people onto that path of peace. Zechariah is excited. Man, he is so pumped. He's so praising God in this moment because not only is he excited about his son, he's overwhelmed with joy about his son, but he sees John through the lens of the greater glory of what God is going to do. God is bringing in this messianic age. like he's This promise that he made centuries ago to Abraham Like in this moment that we're living in now, like he's seeing this. He's seeing this. And he's overjoyed that God has promised to send this new David, that God has, has, has spoken to this prophet who's going to prepare a way. Like, that's my son. Like, you can see the joy that's happening in this. But it goes to a deeper reality here. Because while John was called to prepare the way, he's, Christ has called us to follow him. He, we have been called to follow Christ. And so decades later, when we find John, he's in the wilderness, and he's, and he's, and he's, uh, and he's, he's telling people, about the Messiah and the things that are about to happen and the things that are going to change. And, and he's baptizing people. He's calling people to repentance. He sees across the way, he sees Jesus. And what does he say? In, in John 1, he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold that horn of salvation. He sees it. He's able to experience that in that moment, that, Christ, that things are cha- changing. And through Christ. You see this happening, like John's followers end up becoming Jesus' followers. You see Andrew and, and Peter, they end up following 
Jesus now. And so what makes this good news for us? Why does, why does Advent matter? Why does this scripture, as weird as, as it can be, you know, seen if you're not, if you're reading through it too quickly, it's odd about it. Um, we see the fulfillment of the promise. We see the Christ here. That, our, that through Christ, our sins are going to be forgiven. That through Christ, salvation is going to come. That through Christ, this, this, this darkness that we've been sitting in for so long, he's bringing in a marvelous light. The sunrise is going to break. We're going to see God in all of his glory through this Christ. We're going to see peace. We're going to know peace because of Christ. Christ is good news because without him, we would be walking in the shadow of death. Death would be constantly over us. We would be constantly walking in darkness. But through this incarnation, through Christ taking on flesh and becoming, um, uh, leaving the glory of heaven, he repairs the effect of sin and the fall in a way that we just simply can't. Because where we can try to, and strive to live a perfect life, strive to live that life of devotion, we can't, but Christ will. Christ will live that perfect life. He will never sin. And he's going to offer us a way to God. He's going to be murdered by, by the state and the death that we all deserve because of our sins against God and against others. But Christ, in his goodness and in his mercy, he came for us. He came to earth for sinners so that we might find our hope and peace and salvation in him. And that is good news. Let us pray. Jesus, I, I thank you that, you that you have just so much grace that we haven't even tapped. We, we haven't even tapped your love and goodness and mercy. Lord, we repent of all the ways that we've kept you at arm's length, where we've been more concerned about what people think, what our families think, what our friends think, than what you think. Your heart is for your children. Let us walk in that. Let us, let us walk in a lifestyle of trust in you, Lord. Let us worship you for who you are. Let us just give you all the praise that you deserve. Thank you so much, so much for the cross. Thank you that you give us a path to peace. Thank you for revealing uh, yourself. Thank you for becoming that light so that we didn't stumble around in the darkness trying to find our way, but you made it very clear for us. You lit the path for us that through your son we might have a relationship with God. Thank you so much for giving you all the glory and honor today. Amen. Um,